Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Political Party Podcast, this one featuring rising Labour star Luciana Berger. Again, I'm very sorry for how long these are taking to get out. Um, I've just been very busy, so I, I, know I, need to, I know I need to get these done far quicker, so I'm really sorry about that. Um, but I hope you still enjoy it. Uh, I was going to say it's my New Year's resolution to get these done quicker, but it's now mid-February, well, it's late February. Um, so maybe too late for a New Year's resolution, but I'll, I'll get them out quicker in future. So I hope you enjoy this one. Uh, a lot of people think that Luciana may well be a, a future Labour leader and a future Prime Minister, so it was a real pleasure to have her on the show, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. Well, welcome. This is the last one of the year, by the way. Some people sounded quite happy about that. Uh, give me a cheer if you've been here before. Yeah. Excellent, welcome back regulars. Give me a cheer if this is your first time. Yeah. Excellent, plenty of newcomers as well. Welcome, welcome to the show. Um, so, we'll be looking back on the year in politics, of course. Uh, recent events, like the Rochester and Street by-election. Any UKIP supporters in? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Up on the balcony, uh, within throwing distance, dangerously. Uh, welcome to the show. Uh, incredible result for UKIP. You know, full, massive respect for, for winning a by-election like that. Of course, the main story of the night wasn't the fact that Mark Reckless got re-elected. It was that Emily Thornberry had to resign for taking a picture of a house. <laughs> Which apparently now is the worst crime that we can, can be committed in politics. She resigned as a junior minister. She's now working for Google Street View, where they are... Uh, <laughs> ..making the best use of her skills. I mean, the whole thing was just ridiculous. I mean, we all know why she tweeted it. She was effectively tweeting it, going, ''Have you seen the sort of people that live around here?'' <laughs> That's what the message of it was. We all knew. She knew it. That's why she resigned. She didn't just say, well, no, it wasn't the van. Um, it was the paving, actually. Yes, I'm a big, big fan of Presscrete. Uh, big fan of double glazing. I, I hear they got the back doors done free. So I, I was just interested in a decent deal. Obviously, she'll say, white van, three England flags outside the house. And of course, everyone else said, you can't judge people like this. What are you saying? Just because he's got a white van and three England flags. What, you can't make judgments. And someone said, oh, you know, he's a skinhead. You go, well, yes. I mean, he, perhaps he's a nice one. No, he's a cage fighter. All right, she's got a point. Uh, incredible. The problem was I was still defending him. He might be a cage fighter. He might be a skinhead. You know, he, he runs illegal dog fights. Well, he likes animals. Uh, yes, and he, he donates regularly to ISIS. Well, I mean, he's, he's good that he's interested in foreign policy. Uh, um, Ed Miliband, of course, got himself in the right old state over it. He, um... I don't know if you saw the interview with him where someone said to him, Ed, what do you feel when you look at a, a white van? And he said, you know what I feel? I, I, I feel respect. I, I, you know, I feel proud. Who? Like, even the people who invented the white van don't feel proud when they see it. They look at white vans and they think, what the fuck have I created? And everyone has obviously presumed that Ed Miliband doesn't feel proud, myself included, but he... There's an outside chance that he really does stir his soul <laughs> when he sees a white man. I just love the idea of him being in the back of this sort of like leaves with the opposition's jag or whatever he gets, going down the M1 on a Friday, stuck in traffic. I go, I'm going to have to stop you there. Have you seen what's coming down the other side? It's the 1998 version with the low wheel arch and it really is a type of engineering. And I've got so much respect for it. <laughs> Such an odd thing to sort of have respect for, uh, a, a, a van. Um, I mean, obviously what he should have said is, what do you feel when you see a white van? He should have said, nothing. <laughs> it's a fucking van. What? 
what am I supposed to feel? But that's the problem now, is that the way we treat politicians is, the way politicians treat these answers is, politicians always think, well, some of them think, right, how can I give the most perfect political answer to this question? Uh, he did it earlier in the year, he put a video on YouTube, and someone just said to him, what do you think about? What's the first thing on your mind in the morning? He said, do you know what the first thing on my mind is in the morning? It's about how we deal with the cost of living crisis. <laughs> right, when I wake up in the morning, there are a number of things on my mind. Something very immediate and physical. And others basically to do with food. The economy doesn't sort of enter my radar, and I realise I'm not the leader of the opposition, until at least 11am. Uh, <laughs> I start watching the daily politics. That's such an odd thing, but that's, you know, he got himself into a situation where... He feels like he's got to say, you know, the most earnest thing possible. If you're asking me what I feel about white vans, you know, the guys that drive these things, like, they work so hard. And it ends up being quite patronising. And you just think the problem is with that, he's become so earnest that I just imagine him in every situation now trying to give the most perfect political answer rather than just telling it like it is. Like on football, I think he supports Arsenal, unless I'm wrong. Um, does he, is that right? Leeds. Leeds. He supports Leeds. <laughs> Well, that explains him backing up the white van guy. <laughs> maybe, maybe Miliband's a closet skinhead. It'd be incredible. <laughs> just slowly revealing himself. He, uh, I just imagine him going to a game of football and him saying, oh, Ed, did Leeds do well? You won 2-0. It was a great game of football. Uh, 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 of course, you know, Leeds were fantastic against Sheffield United at the weekend. But let me just say, I've got so much respect for Sheffield United. <laughs> And if it wasn't for them, Leeds wouldn't have been able to score those two goals. And, and, and to, to my mind, that will always be a draw. <laughs> I think he sort of needs to chill out a bit. Although at least now he's got, for next year's party conference speech, he's got a lot more interesting people he can talk about. You know, I met a cage fighter in Rochester. <laughs> uh, and he told me that if he saw me again, he'd throttle me till I died. <laughs> Blair got an award. Blair got an award, right? For, for Save the Children in America, gave him an award for his wonderful work that he did on international development. And now there's a petition that I think already has 100,000 signatures to get him stripped of this award. <laughs> Which is just tragic. Like, I'm a big fan of Blair, right? Now, I understand that he's got a bit of baggage. Because uh, <laughs> of one good decision he took that people just don't get yet, right? It's just, one of the, it's just a bit of a slow burner, for want of a better phrase. <laughs> so 20 years time people will look back on that and go actually that's his Be Here Now that's a great album <laughs> Iraq was just a concept we didn't get at the time he was ahead of his time it's wonderful they're trying to protect, and you think you've still got to give him credit as with all politicians for the good stuff that they've done I would never want to live in a world where no one's allowed to credit Blair or indeed anyone else if you disagree with just maybe a handful of decisions it's got to a point now with Blair where he could save a child from a burning building, perform open heart surgery in the street, put the fire out of this piss, and when the emergency services arrived, people went, good, hope you're here to arrest this war criminal. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Gordon Brown is going to resign as an MP, because um, it made him popular last time. <laughs> sort of another shot at popularity by resigning as an MP. I mean, his resignation speech last time was wonderful, wasn't it? And a lot of us, I think, it made us think again about him. He thought, you know what, he's a decent guy, he's a clever guy, he's a tender soul, and it was something we didn't often see in office. And then say, I remember my old school motto, do your utmost. And, um, you know, he was quite emotionally brought his kids out. Think, oh, God, it's quite nice. You think he's going to resign again as an MP and hopefully he'll do sort of something similar outside his constituency office or whatever, whatever he'll do. But you think, wouldn't it be nice if more people resigned like that? I mean, you can't really do that in everyday life. <laughs> 
We're at Virgin Megastore. Um, as this is my last day. Um, no, the toilet's over there, mate. Yeah, as this is my last day. Reminds me of what the manager at my first HMV said to me. He said, classical music at the front, sport in the middle, and always keep the porn at the back. And it's something that's stayed with me to this day. Because politicians can never resign like normal people, can they? They can never, they always have to do like a, a friendly exchange of letters or it's a principled stand, or even if it is something firing the commons, it's never. I've worked with some people that have sent some of the most incredible resignation emails I've ever read. And wouldn't it be wonderful if Gordon Brown or whoever resigned like that? They came out, when someone resigned from cabinet, when Thornbury went, she just came out and gone, you know what, I had to resign over that tweet, I'm gonna tell you something about these pricks in here, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, you got it right. He's thick as shit, she's losers, she's losers, those two are having it off. <laughs> well, you know now, don't you? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, uh, as always, you've been a, a wonderful crowd. Uh, we have uh, an excellent guest to round off the last political party of the year that we will be back with uh, in about 20 minutes. So thank you very much. Um, recharge your glasses at the bar and we'll be back in the second half for the last one of the year with the excellent Luciana Berger. For now, I've been Matt Ford. See you in a bit. <laughs> Hello, welcome back. Welcome back, welcome back. Everyone have a good break? Yes. And a few beers? Yes. Don't get too rowdy. Um, uh, as always, uh, there'll be an opportunity for you to ask questions. Uh, and I think we've got roving mics um, later on. So if you've got a question you'd like to ask Luciana, do uh, ponder it. Um, and uh, in about sort of half an hour or so, I'll open up the floor to uh, questions. We've had a varied mix of guests down here at the political party, from uh, former cabinet ministers to current junior ministers. Um, people across the ideological divide. Um, and we've spoken to, I think it's fair to say, two or three people that could potentially go on to be future prime ministers. And uh, tonight's guest is certainly one of those people, one of the fastest rising, uh, most noticeable uh, members of uh, Ed Miliband's junior ministerial team, and someone that a lot of people truly believe could well be a future prime minister. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Luciana Berger. So, Luciana, the, the, the big question. What, what do you feel when you look at a white van? <laughs> what do I feel or what do I think? Um, my grandpa um, sold ladies' fashions on uh, market stalls across Northampton, and he had a big white van, which I had the opportunity to, to ride in on quite a number of occasions um, growing up. So, if I think about a white, big, well, big white van, that's, that's the one I think. So, it's nostalgia. Yeah, I mean, oh, he, he worked till he was 78, incredibly, and worked six days a week. It would have been, if Ed would have said nostalgia, that would have been incredible. <laughs> what do you feel when you look at a white van? I feel nostalgic. <laughs> You're going, wow, he's a, real, he's a real deep thinker, old Ed. Uh, obviously, it was a bad result for the Tories in Rochester last week. It was a bad result for Labour as well. It does feel as if, though, like the main parties just simply don't know how to deal with UKIP. Like, does Labour have a plan for, for defeating UKIP? I think we have to, um, we, we've all got a job to do as political parties, we've all got to um, work harder to make sure we are um, accessible, that we are listening, that we also get out there and, and share with uh, the public what, what our offer is and, and what, what Labour's, as my party, what, what Labour's offering. Um, and we have to address what uh, people's legitimate concerns, people do have legitimate concerns about immigration, but we also have to expose um, what is beyond immigration in terms of what UKIP's policies are. And as a woman, um, I'm particularly unimpressed with, you know, we saw Farage's recent interview uh, about women in the workplace and, and how he thought that you know, pregnant women or women were 
returning to work were of less value or had a re reduced value because you know they were they were working mums. I think that's a big issue, and I know that other women as well uh, are particularly unimpressed. And, and things. So I work in the shadow health team, and another big concern is around what UKIP's policies are on the national health service. You know, a big concern, I think, for for all parties and, and particularly ours. And uh, I think if it, people saw that Vine video, it was a six-second video, but it really exposed you know, Farage's um, thoughts and feelings about that we should be moving to a, a private insurance scheme. It does feel odd that it, it, they're sort of like Teflon, aren't they? It must feel like the Tories when they were trying to attack Blair all the time. Like it just feels, even when we say, you could be mad, they're homophobic, they're borderline racist, they hate women, and people go, yeah, but he's funny, isn't he? <laughs> it must be such a frustrating thing to campaign against, because even I'm slightly beguiled by Farage. I don't think I would ever vote for him, but well, I definitely wouldn't vote for him. Um, <laughs> I mean, given his policies, I'm not sure he'd want that to happen. If anything, it would cause a terrific thunderstorm. Uh, <laughs> but it must be frustrating when you fight any opponent like that. I mean, it, it, will it just take just a bit of time for the public, do you think? I mean, let's, I think we also should put it in perspective. Most people aren't voting for UKIP, and I think most people probably arguably see through it. But there is a group of people, isn't there, that, that are slightly sort of more attracted to them than they were five years ago. And they, they just don't, none of those sort of like, the messages about their prejudices, it must be very frustrating when those just simply don't get through. It's a combination of factors. I think it's also the fact that there's something different as well, still yeah. a, a bit edgy. And if you think about what happened in 2010, where it was the Lib Dems that were a bit different and a bit, a bit edgy, they're definitely not different and edgy. Um, and that, that has been proven very clearly. But um, you know, we, we've got a big job to do. You know, uh, I think it's uh, UKIP is a concern, as I said, it's not just for my party but for all parties, and we have to we have to take them on, and um, we have to look behind the curtain to actually see what they're all about. And there's lots of different examples which you touched on um, during your opening. Comedy um, about about what? what uh, <laughs> yes. It's almost like inverted commas that was during your uh, comedy, <laughs> your little routine before the main event. No, no, no. <laughs> it should have been the other way. I should have been the warm-up act for your session. I mean, the, do you get any satisfaction at all from the fact that it's just sent the Tories into a tailspin over it? I mean, they're clearly in a tailspin, and in terms of what might happen, you know, we get these, these, these whispers that there's more people that are looking to defect. The fact that we've already now got two of them um, on this side, of course, it's a massive concern. And if you see what happened in terms of the vote in, in Rochester, you know, it, it was massive. You know, this was a seat that's, I think, 100 and something, it's, it's like one of their safest seats where they had over 50% of the vote at the last election. Yeah. Part of the challenges also is, is the UKIP's more Tory than the Tories, so this is something else that we have to expose and, and, and address uh, as well. But it's clear, and in fact, in PMQs today, it was very evident. Um, oh, he got a rattling, didn't he, yeah. old uh, reckless? He did. <laughs> um, do you ever heckle in the Commons? No, not, not really. Because <laughs> there was one I saw, I think it was today, and it might not have been the reckless bit, but if anyone saw Promises Question Time today, Mark Reckless stands up for the first time as a UKIP MP and gets mm. absolutely just... Hammered. It's the volume of the noise. Yeah. And there's one bit, I heard someone just... like There's a lot of people just going, rah, rah, the usual parliamentary noise. You just say, I'm sure it's a Tory MP. One Tory MP just goes, shut up! <laughs> 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 I mean, it's really bad behaviour, but again, I sort of find it funny. There's um, a lot of laughing. There's a lot of laughing going on as well. It's very noisy today in the chamber. Do you enjoy it when it's rowdy like that? Oh, 
I worry about what it looks like. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's only half an hour of the week and yet all eyes are on what happens at PMQs. There's so much else that goes on and during, the, during the, the Westminster week, which is like Monday to Wednesday, Monday to Thursday. But, you know, as we know full well, the public don't like it. Um, you like it. Oh, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> but there's also people that don't like it. And when I'm on the doorstep and I'm, you know, I'm speaking, you know, I'm in Liverpool and speaking to my constituents, you know, a lot of people don't like it. And so that's, they say, I don't like that PMQs. Was that, was that your attempt at a scout? Yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, I don't know, because I, th- I think when Florence questions on it, it's really easy to say, oh, people don't like it. But like, what other bit of parliament do they watch? And when it's boring, it's mm. awful. Like, when you watch any other parliamentary debate, it is mm. a little bit tedious. And when you watch other parliaments... I was thinking about this in the shower today, I thought... <laughs> <laughs> but it's odd. There's nothing untoward. But I thought, I'm really glad we have an adversarial parliament. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's good for democracy. Yeah. Like, I mean, obviously, I need to... Think about other stuff in the shower, but it was just. It was raining, yeah. so it could have been. <laughs> could be caused by that. Mm. I don't know. Is, do you find it when you ask questions in Parliament? Do you find it like? Do you, are you okay with it, or do you find it? Is it a nerve-wracking experience the first few times you do it? It's definitely um, nerve-wracking when you first do it, and actually, um, first few times at the dispatch box are even more nerve-wracking. And I used to have a shaky leg um, when I was doing it. That's stopped now, but um, yeah, it's it's it's. it's it was deliberately designed to, to look bigger than, than it is. Mm. It's smaller to, than, well, it, it doesn't accommodate all 650 MPs. So um, you often see people sat on the, on the, on the floor yeah. particularly well. It, it's, uh, it's very squashy. I just love it. I lo- but I, I just, to imagine being at the dispatch box mm. when they're roaring at you. I mean, do you remember any of the heckles? Do they... Um, are any of them particularly nasty or is it just general white noise? You have to switch it off because if you you have to focus on what it is that you're saying and doing. I mean, they're deliberately trying to catch you out or they're, well, they're deliberately trying to distract you. So you just got to get on with it and be strong and, and take them on. And sometimes you can respond. If you, if you, if you pick up something, then you can respond. But it's, it's quite hard when there's quite, quite a lot of noise going on. I remember hearing a story, um, and it was a great... In Jonathan Powell's book, The New Machiavelli, he talks about... And it was one of my favourite ever Blair put-downs. I think it was October... 19, I know for a fact it was. It was October 1998. And um, <laughs> they're having a debate on the EU, and Blair's saying to Haig, he said, if he wants to renegotiate the Treaty of Rome, he would need the consent of every single member state. He can't even name one. Well, the Tories have been shouting out, name one single member state that actually agrees with this policy. And you hear this noise, and he goes, yeah, someone, I thought I heard someone shout Norway, and he goes, Norway? They're not even members of the EU. <laughs> and in Jonathan Powell's book, as his chief of staff, he says he effectively invented that. He never heard the word Norway, he just heard noise and thought, I'm going to have it. <laughs> Another reason is to keep that award. But you also have to listen. What's one of the hardest skills as, as being an MP is when you have to respond to a debate. So you have to listen very, very closely to make sure that you capture, that A, that you um, are courteous to all your colleagues to make sure you pick up on all their various points, particularly on your side. If you're feeling um, less kind, you'll, you won't focus on the other side at all. Um, um, but the, you also have to listen to pick up all, all those different issues and weave them into what you have as an existing structure of a speech as well. So technically it's quite, it's quite a skill to develop. Do you watch them sometimes, particularly front benches, uh, particularly on the government side it mm. seems, it looks like they're checking their Blackberry, they're making notes. With Cameron does it a lot, sort of right in a way, and you think, is he trying to appear disrespectful to put the person off? 
Because you're genuinely making notes. How on earth can they respond effectively? Do you get used to multitasking places? Yeah, you definitely have to multitask. And sometimes you can, you're double screening in the chamber where you've got you know, an iPad in one hand, an iPhone in another to make sure that you've got all the different points if you have to kind of pick on, up on something which comes out in the debate which you weren't expecting beforehand. I mean, that's a real skill. I think that's something that people genuinely do admire in politicians, that ability to have to think on your feet. Yeah. And obviously we all mock politicians when uh, people give sort of fluffy answers. But if you don't know what you're talking about... You've got to say something. You can't just you say, do. I've got no idea what the Honourable Member just said. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and as the Minister involved, yeah. I must say, I'm deeply concerned about myself. Yeah. Uh, do you ever find yourself sometimes on your feet and you think, I've just got to say something and you, you sort of play for time and blag it a bit? Also, because you can have an initial speech drafted that you think you're going to be able to deliver it if you're winding up on behalf of the opposition and then find that no one else makes the points that you thought they might and or the kind of the tone of the debate changes as well. So you might think people are going to be like really you know, adversarial on both sides when in fact actually it becomes more of a collegiate debate. Or, yeah. you know, so you have to really alter your response to reflect what's just happened. Otherwise, people shout at you for basically not having listened or actually followed. Have you ever been caught out? Um, I don't think I have, no. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> but it could easily happen, and so that's why it's really important you've got to write lots of notes. You've also got to, um, well, one great thing that we can, uh, by way of the fact we can use our iPads or our iPhones, is that we can check what the constituencies are, because it's quite difficult to remember where all our honourable friends or our, the honourable members on the other side, yeah. this is the language that we have to use, um, where their constituencies are. So you often have to check that as well to make sure you incorporate it in your speech. And in terms of tweeting from Parliament, this is something you sort of campaigned I did, for. yes, very much so. Because um, I find it hilarious. When I'm watching Prime Minister's Question Time, and I've followed a lot of Labour and Tory MPs yeah. on there, and they're tweeting from in there. Yeah. And I got a real thrill once, because I, I replied and said, are you in there? Yeah. I think it was Jonathan Ashworth. He said, yeah. And then I was like, I'm tweeting a guy yeah. who's in there. Yeah. <laughs> this is brilliant. And you almost want to say, like, say a rude word or yeah. something like that, or, like, dare them to do something. Yeah. But is there not a danger that it... If, <laughs> My mum texts me in P- PMQs to, like, to say, give us a wave. Did she ever say, like, um, you, uh, you look like you've fallen asleep or sort your face out or, you know, you, you, you sit up straight or anything like that and you have to go... Oh. She has once said my hairband wasn't straight. <laughs> I didn't know that. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, but live tweeting, yeah. So I think it, I thought I was one of the, the MPs that got involved in the debate. We had um, it was us versus the Luddites that um, didn't think it was right that we should be um, tweeting from the chamber. There was an actual debate that we had, and I got really involved because I thought it was really important that we had the opportunity to tweet because actually I have constituents that tell me that they they read my tweets and actually they appreciate knowing that I'm about to vote or I've just voted on something or what I'm doing um, and being able to do doing well being able to do it live from the chamber I think adds another dimension from what people may or may not see if they happen to be on channel I think it's 83 now for the parliament channel or oh, it might have the I, think was, I think Scottish is 82 and then <laughs> whatever it is, whatever it is, whatever it is. But actually, you know, in 140 characters, I can share what it is that I'm doing on behalf of my constituents. So. How do you find like the rest of Parliament life? Because you're a rarity, being a, not just a woman but a young woman as well. Mm. And Parliament is still seen very much, even though there has been some changes, quite a, a predominantly male and old. Um, is that something that you've had an issue with? Are there certain practices in Parliament that? Maybe just as a young person, not even as a woman, that you find archaic and that you're trying to change. Well, the one thing I did, well, the tweeting I thought was important, and I'm so glad that we're able to do that. Um, it, it, is, it is difficult because, well, it's, it's, it's a challenge on, on occasions because by way of being a, a younger MP, we are in a minority. There's not that many of us. Um, by way of being a woman MP, you know, there's 23% of us are women, so we are a rarity. We're something uh, um, you know, in the minority 
there can often be debates when there can be no women on the benches opposite that I'm sat in. So Ironically, in terms of 23%, you're about as popular as you, kid. <laughs> <laughs> in, sort of in terms of... <laughs> That made me. Sad. That wasn't the point I was trying to make. I was trying to make a link between the fact that you, uh, I don't know what the fuck I was talking about. Um, but it is. It must be. Are you ever the victim of different types of behaviour as a result of being young? Yeah. Oh, quite a few occasions. So I went. I went to a, um, an international conference, I and mean, this has happened quite a few times. But just I think one of the best examples. I went to go check in. There's all these different desks according to kind of what what, what kind of delegate you were. So I went to the parliamentarian desk. Um, they they said um, they said, and whose aid are you? Yeah. I said, I'm, I'm not anyone's aid. You know, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here as a parliamentarian. And they were like people that kind of often struggle. And I've had, been to meetings where they say, so, so when, when does the MP show up? You know, <laughs> that would be me, you know. Um, so, yeah, it can be interesting. Um, that must be immensely frustrating. What about in terms of sexism? Is there, is there a lot of it around in Parliament? Um, I think it's, it's, on some occasions we get treated differently. So um, you know, these, are, these, are not, these are not surprise stories. But um, when there's a, a vote in Parliament... The lifts are reserved for MPs only. Yeah. Uh, you've got eight minutes to get from anywhere on the parliamentary estate to a vote. And if you're on the other side of the estate, it, it can take those eight minutes. So no one else other than MPs is allowed um, to travel in, in lifts. And there was, uh, particularly at the start of parliament, occasions when you know, female MPs were asked to show their passes to prove that they were MPs because we were new and, and no one knew who, who we are. Even, even just this week, you know, um, male MPs that are more easily allowed uh, through the kind of security system, whereas there's me scrambling around in my bag trying to find my past because they know who they are, but they don't know who we are. And Why is that then? Do you just think, is that just because, it, is that always sexism, do you think, or is that just because some of them have been around for like 20 years and they know some, the Some have been around for 20 years, yeah. But uh, I, I don't know. I d uh, yeah. It must be immensely, I mean, just the whole... I mean, I love uh, so much of the traditions of Parliament, but elements of it are clearly so stacked in favour of a particular demographic. And it is odd that I often think, what would I feel as a man if I w turned on Parliament and only 23% of Parliament was male, if I turned on TV and nearly every major person on telly was, was a woman? Like, I, I would think, it's clearly unequal. I just think people have become so blasé almost about it. And I often wonder, like, as a man, do I fully understand the gender divide? Do I really appreciate how difficult it is for women? And I, in all honesty, I don't think anyone can, unless you're one you've been through it. Just like, in terms of everyday sexism, mm. it must just be like a constant battle. Yeah, it's a big problem, you know, particularly, for instance, in, in our media. So the difference between, like, female MPs and male MPs is the number of times that I've had an adjective before my name to describe how I might look. Um, they don't say dashing John Woodcock, or no. they don't talk about my colleague uh, Johnny Reynolds' tie. <laughs> He's welcome. The scruffy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I will get some sort of dis you know, description about what my hair looks like or, you know, what I was wearing that day. And, in fact, my nails are featured on quite a number of occasions in various columns, and I don't think it's of in any interest to the public what what colour nail polish I'm wearing today. For the record, it is black. Um, it's a dark grey. <laughs> Does that, is that, I mean, it is, when you put it like that, it's obvious that male parliamentarians would never have to go through that. Yeah. Is that always at the hands of, of, of male broadcasters or are female broadcasters sometimes almost complicit in a, a sexist society? No, I think oh, I, uh, there's some really fantastic female broadcasters, and I think they're very sisterly, and because they themselves are also in the minority, particularly within political journalism, where there's very few female lobby correspondents. Um, you know, it's, it's that is definitely a male world as well. Um, in terms of, I mean, we've obviously just had Rochester and Street by-elections. Um, 
Do you enjoy a by-election? Do you enjoy going there and campaigning in something that's so intense and focused? Yes. I, mean, some, I think some MPs hate it. Like, I, when I worked for the Labour Party, some absolutely feared by-elections because they're so ferocious and intense. I always thought they were a great deal of fun. <laughs> I mean, is it something that you relish? You think, great, we've got a by-election. Let's go and take on UKIP. What do you think? Oh, for God's sake, another one of these. Well, we were lucky to have a really fantastic candidate in Rochester. and um, We had a Nashaba who um, was hotly tipped by journalists on all sides of the political uh, spectrum um, and was actually highlighted as probably the best candidate, well, the best candidate, because um, she was a formidable force and I think she did a great job to encourage uh, lots of us because she was so committed and, and did so much by way of campaigning. So I was delighted to go join her um, a few weeks ago. And I, I went with some of my colleagues in the House of Lords who I enjoy spending a lot of time with as well. well they, you know, they, they were prepared to get involved and roll their sleeves off and get stuck in as well, so it's good. They can get quite dirty, can't they, by elections? They can be quite ferocious. Mm. And I, I've worked on them before and I, I sometimes had issues with some of the stuff that we were putting out in, in by-elections that I worked on and you just think, ah, son, it's all right, and everyone's doing it, so it's fine. Uh, the, the culture of them actually can be quite negative, can't they? Yeah. I mean, do you ever, have you ever had an issue, maybe not just an MP, but as an activist yeah. sometimes, with the, with the tone of some of the campaigns you've been involved in? I can talk about other parties' campaigns. I, I, experience, I experience it myself, but I think, I think we've learned. I mean, there's, there's, some, there's some historical examples of where actually we know the public don't like negative campaigning, and you can, go, you, can go to a, you, can, you can do a little bit of it, but actually, if I reflect on my own campaign back in 2010, we deliberately didn't do it, um, because actually the feedback was, we don't want to hear it, and actually we want to know what you're about and, and what your offer is. We don't want to hear you attacking other candidates. And, and actually, my own experience was that my opponents went too far, and by constantly attacking me as a person and me as an individual, um, actually my constituents turned, turned against it yeah. and, and reacted pretty badly to it and they, and they took it too far. How do you react to stuff like that then? Because some of it is, you know, you could justify it as part of political discourse. You mm. think, well, if someone believes in something, that should be highlighted on Leaflet. And if that's something could potentially mean that criminals are let out early, yeah. then, uh, you know, maybe it's fine to do a picture of you next to a jail holding the door open or something, you know, anything like that, where yeah. as a political campaign, you, you try and find a picture and maybe yeah. you'd make it a bit controversial. Um, and how much is just simply abuse? Well, I mean, there's lots of examples of whether there has been abuse and there's clearly a line. You know, if people want to attack me for my views and my opinions, I accept that. That's the job that I'm in, and I will, I will gladly get involved in that, in that debate. That's what politics is all about. But you know, when they, when that line is crossed, I think that's something that we need to address. But but also because it puts the public off. I mean, that for me is, is the, the priority. Is that how can we engage people? They don't want it, They don't want the yabu of politics. They might want a little sprinkle of it. Yeah. But but in, and I know you love it. Yeah. But um, <laughs> but most people, if you you know, if if I think about the feedback I've had. People want to know what you know what you're about. Not me, you know, people weren't voting for me as an individual; they were voting for me as, as the Labour candidate and what you know what Labour's offer was, and, th and that's what we should continue to do. So the thing with negative campaigning is that sometimes it does it sort of works, doesn't it? I mean, do you think? Do you think? I mean, a lot of people are saying that the next election is going to be ferocious, and that it's really yeah. going to have to put with a, a significant amount of abuse, probably more than even Neil Kinnock got in 1992. <coughs> is he braced for that? Is he capable of dealing with what could well be just an avalanche of borderline hatred? Well, you know, the press right from the very beginning have uh, had it in for, you know, for Ed. So, you know, I think he's very well prepared. Because I think he handles it quite well. Like, yeah. terms, obviously, I think some of the stuff he says is a little daft, but he never looks like it's weighing him down. Ed is, I think, pretty dogmatic and, and uh, pretty well, very focused on the job that he's tasked with doing. Because the effect he had on Gordon Brown, Gordon Brown just looked absolutely almost crippled by the yeah. job, didn't he? He looked weighed down by the pressure. Whereas with Ed, you know, he does. He always seems fairly breezy. 
Well, and I think even more so, if you saw him at PMQs today, he was pretty ferocious and pretty <laughs> passionate. <laughs> <laughs> I was sat in the chamber. Where were you watching it from? I was watching it on TV. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> tweeting abuse to Ed Miliband. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, ju- I just hope that, because wh- one thing I think is, I think it's legitimate to, to take the mick out of politicians to an extent about um, their mannerisms, and I think it's always legitimate to take the mick out of people's standpoint and their policies and, you know, the things that they've got wrong. Um, but I do wonder sometimes, and I worry about the tone of politics and the way it's conducted, and I would never want, because I think he's a fundamentally a decent man, Ed Miliband, and I wouldn't ever want to feel sorry for him. And I think there's a sort of real danger that he'll be turned into a victim, and as a result, that, that would actually go against him. But it hasn't happened so far. As I said, you know, he's, he has been the leader for four years, and the press have had it in for him right from the very start. So, you know, he's actually you know, shown strength through them attacking him. I think because you know him quite well, and obviously you're you're a, you're a minister in his in his shadow team. Yeah. Um, I mean, what's he like behind closed doors? Well, I, <laughs> as in, you think, well, as in, what do you mean? As well, like, <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I'm thinking about some of your earlier comments. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I realised that that could have been, was <laughs> up behind closed doors, naked mostly. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but what, um, away from the public, yeah. in, in, in private, um, as a politician, <laughs> um, I took myself so many holes that weren't required. Um, so what, your little mini space? Yeah. <laughs> Um, what's it like professionally in private? You know, is he is he a funny guy? Is he? I don't know why people are finding that funny. I feel like I'm using the word. He's incredibly supportive. He's he's he's. I mean, if I think back to why I supported it in the first place, um, he's very collegiate. He's uh, a great listener, which was, for me was something that I thought was really important in the leader of the Labour Party, particularly in like the fact we hold our second lowest in our history back at the last general election and he brings people together and he genuinely cares you know he he's on top of you know everything that's going on he's you know when he hears about something that might be going on in, in your personal life he reaches out and asks if you're right or if a gossip. congratulates you or whatever he might hear <laughs> but that's important you know in yeah. terms of not not all leaders do that or have done that so no indeed um is he because a lot of people say and i remember people said it with gordon that oh, you know, if only more people could actually meet ed mm. instead of having to sort of experience him through the media mm. he would be more popular and, and, and labor would be in a different position than he would be um well ed came to my constituency in the run-up to the general election um, not many other cabinet ministers at the time did, mm. but he, he was someone that solicited the most positive feedback on the doorstep from my constituents who met him at the time. So what was their view of him? Well, they really liked him, and the fact that he was prepared to, as I said, for me, listening is a really important skill within, you know, not just a skill, but something that we, we need to actively be doing. You always get told you've got two of these and one of those, and that's what we should be applying to politics, and that's what I saw from Ed. Um, and people, you know, like the fact they were, you know, he wasn't just knocking on the doorstep, vote for me, or vote for, you know, vote for Labour. He was prepared to pause for you know as long as it took yeah. for people to have that chat with him and to and to talk about the, the, the situation of the day uh, in terms of labor going because the next election is, is going to be on us very very quickly and in mm. terms of i think once we get to already it started hasn't it um but once we're into the new year in a couple of months time it'll be, mm. it really will start to the dividing lines will become clear um do you worry that in general people seem to think that there isn't a big difference between the three major parties anymore and even as someone who's been involved in politics, you sort of have to say that things have converged a little around the centre ground. And the new challenge for, the, for Labour and the Tories and the Lib Dems is to, is to show clear dividing lines in, in actually quite what is still economically quite a vague and quite difficult time. Is, is, is that a challenge that you, you feel as a Labour Party member or have I 
misread. I think when you sit in Parliament, as I do three days a week, um, and we're involved in those debates, the dividing lines, to me, are very clear, but I accept that we've got to do a much better job of actually kind of highlighting what they are. And it comes back to my earlier point around, you know, what our policies are and what our offer is as a Labour Party and how we want to help everyone, not just a few at the top. Um, Because those messages, I think maybe stuff on the bedroom tax has got through a bit, and the idea that you know bankers haven't been punished. Well, I mean, I think one of the one of the fundamental things is is that Labour, I don't feel, has really got its message out that the the economic crash was largely caused by a global financial crisis. And it feels like we sort of apologised. I feel like Ed apologised for for the way we ran the economy, and actually that wasn't the full story. And I feel like we've boxed ourselves in now to effectively, or Labour has boxed itself into um, a, a conservative narrative on the economy. And like, how do we get away from that? How does Labour get away from that? And why that happened was it was because we had a leadership election in the immediate aftermath of the general election and it created a vacuum for quite a few months yeah. during which the Tories used that to peddle, as you say, you know, the myth that, that the Labour somehow created the global crisis. If it hadn't been for the action that Labour took, which then other governments across the world took, you know, our whole system would have collapsed and you've heard many a story, you would have gone to the cash machine and nothing would have come out. So I miss me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um... I just, I, I just feel like Labour is... Well, I feel like all three major parties yeah. are. I don't think it's not specific to Labour. I just feel like there's almost like a sense of drift around mainstream politics at the moment, and this is what UKIP are capitalising on. I disagree. Uh, I, don't, I don't agree. Um, in terms of like what our focus is, I, want, you know, I did an exercise where I um, had all these listening events across my constituency, and it was very clear from the feedback from from. from people across my constituency that the biggest issue was that people felt they were either standing still or going backwards and we've talked a lot about mm. the, you know, the cost of living. This is a serious issue for millions of people up and down our country and yet there's no even acknowledgement of that from the Tories, let alone any idea about how they might address it. Um, so I think there's a very clear divide in terms of for us, that is kind of the headline that we hear in our constituencies all the time, that people want proper answers from government about how we can really help people out. In Parliament, MPs often become friends with other members in other parties. Mm. Um, do you have any mates in the Lib Dems or the Tories that you sort of get on with? So I've, I've worked with quite a few of them because there's, there's some issues that transcend party politics and we do have to work together on. Um, I've done a lot of work on campaigning around dangerous dogs, for instance, and there's lots of, um, of, of MPs of all political persuasion that are really exercised by that issue as well. Um, I can't think of any that I'd go to the pub with. <laughs> um, but, you know... The, the, there are some that are more collegiate than others. I think there, there is there is there is definitely two two camps, and some that at least endeavour to to you know reach out. Um, there are other occasions where we also have to work together, like select committees. So I was on a select committee when I was first elected, and there you you do have to work together to make sure you cover all the different issues. So the, the things that we have to work together on, but in terms of being mates, no. I just wondered in terms of like defections, like with mm. obviously the people have crossed the floor in various directions yeah. over the years, and now with the two UKIP ones. But are there, because Farage is saying that he's talking to people in the Labour Party, like are there any names doing the rounds? No, saying, you know, none at all. None at all. Whoever it is, yeah, Austin Mitchell's on the verge of going to UKIP. Or, <laughs> Austin Mitchell's standing down, but uh, no, I, I just th- I think he's been asked quite a few times, like, gone, name them, and he yeah. hasn't. So I haven't heard anything of that sort. And thank you, you know, the fact is that I think it's quite a lonely place for anyone that defects, that comes and finds himself sat amongst um, um, so my colleagues now on, on that front bench on, to, on the other side so my colleague Steve and a good friend Steve Rotherham is none best pleased that he's now got Mark Reckless sat next to him and yeah I, because obviously the, I, I just I find it inconceivable that there won't be another Tory defection 
before the election to UKIP. So, like, did you... Well, the there's talk of, like, you know, dozens of, of, of MPs that have considered and it. Are the names going around Parliament? Do you hear flipping it? Like, before Reckless and Carswell, yeah. did you have any inkling at all? In terms of who it might be, no. Yeah. So it doesn't sort of do like the parliamentary rounds. People aren't in the bars going, Reckless is off tomorrow, put 50 quid on it. <laughs> <laughs> there, there might be some colleagues, that, there, might be, there might, be some, might be some MPs that have those conversations that haven't been party to them. Uh, the last time I bet on politics, actually, reminds me, oh my God. Um, in, in the run-up to the 2010 election, well, in the run-up to what should have been the 2009 election, um, <laughs> <laughs> I was working for the party in the regional office. And Which one? East Midlands. Yeah. And I remember being... Um, we in a meeting with, I think it was someone from number 10, someone from the Labour Party, and they said, we're looking at the first, this was, we were at Bournemouth at the party conference, and they said, we're looking at the first fortnight in November, you need to leave the conference now, go back, get the printers going and get your MPs out. I was like, oh my God, I'm, like, I've got the information. So I got the information, <laughs> and I was like, oh God. And I, just before I was like, packed my bag in my hotel, and I just thought, I wonder what odds Labbrooks are offering. <laughs> <laughs> On the first fortnight in November, and I, I, it was eight to one, and I put a hundred quid, <gasps> and I just thought, this is the easiest eight hundred quid. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I, I was driving back in my company car, that, those red Astras that we all had, but driving up the motorway, thinking, my main concern was, am I liable to be prosecuted for insider dealing? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not going to lose hundred quid because he's bloody bottled it. And I just, I remember, I remember being in the office the following day. I was like, eight hundred quid. I'd already earmarked it. I was going to have a, a haircut. I was going to have pasties and all sorts of stuff. Like a very expensive haircut, very expensive yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just remember my boss coming in and going, oh, um, there's going to be an announcement. I was like, hello? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the one you think it is. And I dropped, like, I dropped a, 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 a massive box of paper on my foot. And to this day, I still have a slight twinge. I, I think I did my metatarsal, oh. which was a, a sort of in vogue injury at the time. Every time I feel that twitch, I just think, Gordon Brown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Quid. It was a, I was thinking, I should put another bet on. I, I mean, I was thinking, you know what, I could get a house with this information. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so sad. So sad. But there is a thrill to politics. One of the things I really enjoyed about it was like knowing stuff before other people do. Like, that, even as a politician, does that ever wear off? Do you think, oh, I've got the confidential information? No. <laughs> I had the press release that was um, embargoed for something tomorrow, you know, it's very exciting. Oh, what's going to be announced tomorrow? Yeah. I mean, by the time the podcast goes out, it'll be like next week. Yeah. There's only like a hundred of I'm sure it. there's quite a few journalists in the audience, so... Yeah, but they won't say anything, right, guys? I mean, we <laughs> scout us on, right? Yeah. Is there going to be an announcement tomorrow, then? Is there... Yeah. Oh, my God. From Labour? From Labour? To wait and see. Oh, my God. I mean, it's only like a few hours away. If you stay yeah. here till midnight, yeah. can you then tell us? <laughs> oh, that's so exciting. Yeah. Um, is, it, is it on health? I can't... Can't... <laughs> <laughs> But what I think is exciting might not be exciting to the whole audience. Oh, but I'd probably find it exciting. You would, politics, yeah. yeah. Okay, so it is unhealthy. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I won't push you anymore. Um, Sorry, I didn't mean Okay, so it'll be tomorrow. So, like, what sort of time tomorrow? Yeah. <laughs> you might get it on the Radio 4 News at midnight. I'm going to try and, like... The problem is, for the rest of this interview now, I'm going to be trying to find it out. <laughs> might tell you afterwards. I'm, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to ask you about something, and I'm going to go, oh, what was that thing again tomorrow? And then you go, we're going to... Uh, <laughs> no chance, know, no ban chance. something. <laughs> white Ban white pants, exactly. <laughs> um, <clears throat> uh, we're talking about the tone of politics, and it's something I, I wondered about asking you, but it's been such a big news story, and it's a lot of people... Uh, will have noticed 
it, sort of in the last few weeks is the, the awful abuse that we get on Twitter and the lengths you've had to go to to sort of prevent people from abusing you on there. Like that is obviously beyond the realms of what's acceptable in politics. Does yeah. that it, just in terms of the sheer scale of it and the tone of it? Is that something that has ever made you think that maybe being an MP is something that you don't want to do? Well, you, you mentioned the, the scale and the tone, and, and probably, unless people happen to see like a Sunday Times article or um, something in The Guardian, people perhaps sat here won't know what it is that you're talking about. So um, when you're in the middle of something like this, it's, it's pretty extreme, but outside, no one really knows what it is that you're going through. I um, have received what the police say is over 2,500 uh, anti-Semitic messages um, on Twitter, but not just Twitter, on other social media platforms um, as well. And that's been my experience. My concern is, you, you say, it, it could happen to anyone. So it's not just about being a politician. It could be someone much younger than myself. It could be someone that's not in the public. I've had someone that doesn't have a, a support structure, doesn't, someone that doesn't, um, perhaps not, not as resilient as they happen to be at the moment, or um, perhaps someone um, that doesn't have a voice that I, I'm lucky to have. Um, so for all those reasons, there's a separate issue about how we contend with abuse that people get on social media because just to receive one of these messages has really shocked some people that might have been copied into them and if you look at the scale of what I've received now, I appreciate that some other people might not get it on the same scale but even just to receive one can be difficult in and of itself. Um, and, and what effect has that had on you psychologically or emotionally? I think it's, it's hard. I'm not going to say, you know, my, my skin's thick, but it's not that thick. Uh, you know, it has an effect, but I suppose it just makes me want to do even more to protect others that might face the same experience because it is so hideous. And how easy is it to, to stop? Uh, well, I, I imagine it's very difficult to prevent altogether, but how easy is it to... So if people are using Twitter accounts where they've got fake names and they've probably got thousands mm. of them, there's probably just one person could have been responsible for all those conceivably in, in sort of Twitter land. How is it, is it to track these people down and to, and to find them and to prosecute them? Um, it depends. So um, someone was prosecuted um, and, and therefore they were identified and their IP address was, was easily found. But the messages that then followed uh, were inspired by a website which told people how to set up accounts from untraceable or bouncing IP addresses. So actually it makes the, the, anyone's job impossible to trace where it comes from. Do you worry though about? I mean, you're right to say perhaps that other people get abused that aren't politicians, mm. and you know it's, that could make it harder for them. Um, but do you worry about the, the tone in which the public deals with politics now? Because I do. I think like there's so just much, just the general level of disrespect towards politicians, partly caused by politics itself, but largely, I would say, quite ignorant disrespect, where we just presume or people presume that politicians are nefarious individuals who are always acting in their own self-interest and actually don't care uh, about the public at all. <laughs> Firstly, do you sort of agree that, that there is a problem with the public perception? Secondly, if there is, how does politics change it? So I think we see that in, 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 in some people. I wouldn't say it's across the board, but you know, just in terms of some of the messages that I get, it's very clear that people hold that view. Again, it's incumbent on us as MPs to do whatever we possibly can to get out there, to be um, connecting, to be listening, to be engaging, to be on the doorstep. I try and get out for as many sessions a week, so I'm actually listening to the people that elected me to represent them to ensure that when I'm in Parliament, I'm actually you know, raising the issues that they think are important. Um, and we just have to do even more of that to get out there. So it's more about individual MPs changing individual minds. It's almost like a, it's, a, it's more of the street war than it is a sort of trying to do it through the media? It's a bit of both, but what's really interesting is that if, if people are asked about their local MP, actually, in, in most cases, we're held in, you know, in, in, 
in the highest esteem you'd hope, or you know, that people have positive responses about their MP locally because they can point to things they've done or responses that they've had or how they've engaged with them. The challenges as a group collectively, um, you know, we get a lot of abuse, and, and we have to acknowledge, you know, in the wake of the expenses scandal, you know, we've got a lot to do to re- restore trust in politics. Um, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a big job to be done. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Um, when you're out on the doorstep, because I used to sometimes get really scared door knocking. Like if you saw, <laughs> like, it's interesting that you mentioned your campaign against dangerous dogs. Yeah. If I thought a house had a dog, I would not knock on the front door. Yeah. And I became really astute at looking for, firstly, paw marks on the front door, yeah. and maybe if the front garden was um, uneven in grass yeah. because the dog had been running around <laughs> on it. Um, any sort of evidence of anything being chewed yeah. at the gate post... And I used to be able to say, that house has got a dog. Yeah. And I was, nine times out of ten, I think I was yeah. right. Um, but equally, sometimes the public would be very aggressive. Um, a guy in Corby threatened to set three Dobermen on me. Right. Um, and he, uh, they hadn't arrived yet, which was a very odd... <laughs> <laughs> they were sort of, I, thought, um, I don't know whether I'm safe like leaving his property, because then they're going to sort of come around the corner. Do you ever get any of that? Are there any situations where you've knocked on the door, not just in your own constituency, and been faced with sort of rage? Um, it happens rarely, but it does happen. Um, you know, if you, you get someone on a bad day or, you know, um, I knocked on someone's door and, and they'd come in from a night shift and that was, you know, yeah. um, you know that was not, not a good time for me to be knocking on their door. So um, it, it can happen. Um, particularly, I think, I had, I've had it recently where you know, people don't agree with something that you voted on. Gay marriage, for instance, was something which has... Um, voted for it, right? I voted yeah. and supported gay marriage, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, but, you know, for, for, you know, you can't please everyone um, and there's, some, you know, there's not all issues that everyone's going to agree with you with. And, and that was one for some people that was, you know, a hot topic and, and they can be quite aggressive in response about it. It must be odd when it's something like that where it's a real point of principle, mm. where it's not like something you could be convinced of. Uh, maybe sort of a spending commitment where you could argue that maybe within the health budget you could put money elsewhere, where it's just an absolute point of morality. Um, I mean, was the person won over at all by what you said? Uh, there wasn't an opportunity really to, really to engage. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a really polite way of... Yeah. Re- but then also that something that comes up is, um, you know, recently someone said, you know, um, you said X in your letter to me. I was like, I'm sure I didn't say, you know, what they said. I said, it just, it just, just isn't anything that I would have ever said. So actually, I've got a system where I stable. Uh, you know, we actually uh, we're registered with the Information Commissioner. We have to make sure that we collect all the detail. Um, and I was able to check the correspondence that I sent, and, and actually went back to that constituent to say, you said I said this, but actually, here's a copy in case you didn't, you know, receive it. Just this is actually what I did say. You know. Do you worry about? Um, there seems to be a particular view, and I understand it about 
professional politicians, about career politicians, yeah. and, and, and as a young rising star, obviously you might be sort of victim of this perception yourself at times, um, that uh, MPs should be older people that have, that have been out there, that have got experience, that have lived a life, and then should go into Parliament. And I have to say, even as a young person, even when I worked in politics, I sort of held that view for a while. Um, I think maybe it's just of leaders, but do you, do you sort of feel like there's a backlash against sort of young, talented politicians? Well, if I reflect on my own experience, I've done lots of different things. Um, I have made sandwiches in pet and I have I'm worn the Disney cardigan. Uh, I have you know, worked um, in equality. I have um, worked for a blue chip company. I've, you know, I've done lots of different things. Now, I don't for one second say that to say that, you know, that, that means I'm very experienced. I know everything that, that I'm talking about, of course. Um, you know, uh, it, it's, it just reflects on the fact that I've got lots of different um, experiences um, to draw on. But by way of being a younger MP, actually, I think I've got something different to offer um, that perhaps I don't have an experience, but I can make up for with energy and enthusiasm. Um, and that also, um, you know, there are some issues that by way of being an MP that, um, you know, I've only just paid off my student loan. Um, so when we're talking about student um, finance, that actually I can talk about it from quite recent experience, um, that um, by way of being a younger MP, also you turn up on someone's door, actually it's something quite different, and people say, oh, you're my MP. Or um, I think we just offer some, another kind of facet to politics, so I think there is benefit in having younger MPs as well. Um, but in terms of like the professional political class, mm. and I don't think you ever you were sort of really part of that. It's just that you're you're you're, you're a younger MP yeah. rather than someone who's been on that conveyor belt. I wasn't you know, a special advisor. I hadn't worked in Parliament before. Um, and I, I sort of I worry about saying that people who've been special advisors things are necessarily bad things. Often they are very talented, very driven, and they're good politicians. Some of them, but it does feel as if though the leadership of parties is being taken from quite a small gene pool. How does how do parties how does Labour specifically reach out to people beyond that quite narrow uh, demographic? We need a mix. We need people from all different backgrounds. I think there's value in people that have worked in policy before because they've got that experience. Um, I think everyone's got a contribution um, to make. Um, I think we've got a big job to do in terms of diversity um, within all political parties, although you know, I welcome the fact that within my own party we're now 31% female and there's, we're taking some really positive action, I think, to improve our, our so male-female... MPs or party membership? In terms of MPs within the Parliamentary okay. Labour Party. Um, so, you know, there's a, but we need to do more in terms of diversity, in terms of you know, MPs um, with disabilities. I think the other parties have even got you know, an even bigger job to do, and, and that's part of the challenge, that if you turn on the Parliament channel, yeah. you, know, you don't see something that necessarily reflects society. So, again, it's, it's, a, it's a job for all par you know, political parties to do more to improve the diversity and, and, and um, range of people that uh, become MPs. So when you first got into politics, I mean, you, you, were, into, you were into politics quite young, in, you know, in the NUS and things like that at a very young age. Um, did you want to be Prime Minister? No, <laughs> I didn't. Um, it, but the difference was is I hadn't learned about politics at school. And that's in terms of, you know, I, I, re I regret the fact that there was an option to do a politics yeah. GCSE at like A-level, but I hadn't, um, I didn't have citizenship, which is something we, we now have within schools, which I think is really important. Um, I just, you know, my parents weren't party political. I watched the six o'clock news, but that's one thing that I regret that I didn't perhaps know more about it, you know, when I was, when I was younger and I came to it by way of doing a master's quite later on. So what got you into it? Um, so I think I was political with a small p in the, you know, how I got involved. I was um, 
really into like, my community and, and to family and volunteering. Um, I was the one that always organised the charity days and I was just kind of enraged about lots of different things and just keen to make that difference. So that is what politics ultimately is about and change and, 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 I, you know, and, and how you can affect that change. But I just didn't see it through the prism of party politics until I, did, I joined the Labour Party when I got to university. So I, was in, you know, I got involved in student politics. Um, someone said, oh, you should put yourself forward to um, go to the big NUS conference. So I stood in my first student election in my first year and that's how I then it kind of opened up the whole world of, of national politics. I didn't perhaps so know so much about. What year was that? That was in 2000. So 2000, so Blair was still Prime Minister. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm just trying to sort of picture the political, at the time, so it was pre-Iraq, yeah. um, pre-9-11. Yeah. So it's a slightly different mix really in terms of like transport was probably the biggest issue then or uh, <laughs> may well have been health. Uh, so what were, the, what were the issues then at the time that drew you to the Labour Party? Or was it just simply the man? It was lots of different things. Um, for me one of the biggest things was, was the, the work that Labour did around equality and I just think you know for me that's just such a such a like a passion and a, and a driving value that you know I want an equal society and I want a, a society free from discrimination and we've still got some way to go but it was the Labour Party that moved the goalposts and I saw that happening before my eyes as a student and um, that's that's kind of and everything around social justice as well that we were doing around the Millennium Development Goals as well. Because uh, I interviewed Matthew Paris about a year and a half ago and he said that at some point every MP will have wanted to be Prime Minister whether it was a fleeting moment, maybe in your student days, or maybe growing as, as, as an MP. Um, if, if maybe you don't want to be promised of it, are there, are there ever times when you're sat around in ministeri shadow ministerial meetings um, where you think, you'll have a clue what he's talking about. I'd be far better running this show. Are there, are no. Never, it never sort of once occurs to you, you know what, I should be in charge of this. Definitely not. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty new to the, to, the, to the health team, and we've all got. We're always learning. There's always there's always more to do. But you know, I'm I'm a relatively new MP elected in 2010. There's lots of people around me that have got you know a lot more experience. I'm still learning, and my focus first and foremost, um, and I think you know, will continue to be how I can be the best constituency MP because without Liverpool, which is my home and my constituents, then I wouldn't be an MP in the first place. In terms of like, people manoeuvring, then, it must be very frustrating. The whole thing about this supposed letter that existed the other week around Ed, and, and they said 70 to 100 MPs are ready to sign a letter, 20 members of the Shadow Cabinet or Shadow There was members. no letter. So it was just all just phantom, like no one was saying, here, Lucy, I'm It was all these journalists. So I was getting all these text messages from like, 10 journalists that's, you know, so, the meeting, the meeting, what happened in the meeting? And it's like, there, there was nothing that happened in the meeting and there was no letter. So I, it was something that was fabricated. I don't know where it came from, but there was obviously, you know, there was a couple of dissenting voices, but you're always going to get gripers. Do people ever try and like tap you up and say, uh, do they ever ring you and say, can I just say, Luciana, I'm not going to go public, but I think it would be better if you were in charge and how do we get rid of it? That's never happened. And when David Miliband's not on the phone. Um, <laughs> but, just, but there must be like whispering, there must be whispering sometimes where you think, Oh, it God, really just isn't. Leave alone. I know it's disappointing, but it really doesn't happen. And actually, if you look, if you look at the Parliamentary Labour Party, we are the most united that we've ever been in opposition. Actually, part of our downfall you know, in, in previous time has been the fact that we haven't been united. But if you look at you know, how we operate and exist together, and we're pretty focused as a, as a Parliamentary Labour Party. Uh, in terms of like, the, the poll ratings now, it's just it, 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 the fact that no... What I find incredible is that the government isn't strong enough to sort of 
get a proper lead over Miliband, and I can't believe I feel like Miliband's not struggling to get a proper lead over the government. It seems like a very odd situation all round. I mean, we were looking at a situation going into a general election where we're potentially getting a hung parliament. It might have to be in coalition with the Lib Dems after it. <laughs> Does that? I mean, is that something that? Well, firstly, how would you feel about going into coalition with the Lib Dems? Well, we have to see how many Lib Dems are left. I mean, in terms of you know what's going to happen at, <laughs> at the next uh, next election. In fact, um, this, we had a vote just at seven o'clock before I came here this evening, and um, we were in the we were on the lift. Um, I was with some of my colleagues. So there's different floors in, in Portcullis House where it's different political parties. So Labour's on the top floor, and we're going down. I was with my colleagues, and a group of Lib Dems. Um, walked into the lift uh, and um, someone said, oh, you know, wh what's the collective noun for a group of Lib Dems? And someone said, why bother? Because they're not going to be around <laughs> after the election. <laughs> a quiver. <laughs> a, a, a threat. Um, I mean, are any, are any Lib Dem MPs like, noticeably being... I imagine Lib Dem MPs now being really nice to Labour MPs trying to sort of like build bridges before the election. Is that no. No, it doesn't happen. But also because we're so angry at them as well, yeah. we're not interested. You know, just, just think there's any opportunity because ultimately they've allowed everything to happen. So you know, they present themselves as as different. But you know, you'd mentioned the bedroom tax before. You know, four votes they've allowed the bedroom tax to go through. They can't now say, oh, we don't want the bedroom tax um, because it's their votes that enabled it to be introduced. What about like when you pass them in the corridor? Like, do you ever pass Nick Clegg in the corridor and he'll say, "Hi, Luciana," and do you ever go? Fuck you, Nick. <laughs> or do you go, hi, Nick. Like, how do you deal with stuff like that when you're dealing with people that you're really angry with? Yeah. Well, well, I don't think Nick Clegg would say hello to me because his, um, my seat was the target seat for the Lib Dems in the northwest of England at the last election. So he came to my constituency on quite a few occasions um, with the hope of like, you know, winning it for his candidate. And we, you know, we actually increased the majority of my constituency at the last election. So they failed miserably on that account. So he's not interested um, in, in saying hello. And I think, you know, I, I shadow Norman Lamb. Um, as, as Shadow Minister for yeah. Public Health and Mental Health, and I give him a pretty hard time. So, again, I don't think he's um, keen to have friendly chats. Um, in terms of mental health, obviously, it's a massive issue, and like, specifically in terms of public perceptions around mental health, and it's obviously something you're very passionate about and deeply involved yeah. in. And I, I would say, specifically around depression, there doesn't seem to be, it seems like such a, a major problem for so many people, and that public attitudes towards it seem so disgraceful. Um, in terms of, you know, you often hear people say, oh, cheer up, what's the matter? Mm. How can you be depressed if you're a millionaire? I mean, people don't say that to me. Yeah. But, you know, you hear, when people talk about depression in football or politics, yeah. you know, and that's, that's to Campbell, obviously, that we've had down here, is a major example of someone in, in a real position of power who's been really open about his demons and, 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 yeah. and the trouble it gives him. Um, do you encounter, even within politics, ignorance about mental health? Well, I think, I think historically that has been the case. I think it's, you know, the whole issue's a lot more in, in, in the political domain because we've had some very, I think, um, brave colleagues who have um, spoken about their own personal experiences, which I think have helped challenge the stigma. We have got a long way to go, but you know, there have been some really important campaigns like Time to Change, which um, have meant that you know, we have shifted um, public opinion somewhat. We're not there yet, um, and my job is to ensure that we are treating mental health in exactly the same way that we treat physical health. It is written in law, we should be having this, what's called parity of esteem. Mm. It's not actually happening in practice. We actually, you know, we've got more disparity than parity. So you know, actually what's also important that, that people that, that might have a mental health problem actually get the support um, that they need. And that's, that's the big problem at the moment that we're seeing our mental health services go backwards, not forwards. And is that, are they issues specific to the coalition not taking mental health seriously? Or is this, just, is this problem even just within the NHS regardless of who is in charge of it? 
Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, if, you, if I point to like actually, you know, what's happening on the ground, you know, we saw um, a, there was a cut uh, imposed to mental health trusts, which was 20% higher than all other trusts. That, that, that's one good example where you know the mental health isn't being treated in the same way as as, as physical health. Um, if you look at um, how um, under this new NHS landscape, you know, we had this big reorganisation that's cost lots of money, um, where clinical commissioning groups that are run by GPs um, now decide how to allocate their budgets. So they don't have to declare how they're spending their budgets until well later this uh, coming up. Um, so I asked them back before the summer, like how much of their budgets they were allocating towards mental health. Have a guess. What would you what would you anticipate of a, of a proportion? You know, in terms of uh, the average their, clinical commission group. Yeah. So, what proportion of their overall budget would you hope that they might um, lend towards mental health? Um, obviously, there's been a big change since 1995. <laughs> um, I would guess that. Um, I'm just trying to imagine what we're going to find. The average clinical commission group. I'm going to say, wouldn't it be great if there was a political game show like yeah. this? <laughs> uh, the average clinical commission group spends, I would say, on mental health <laughs> annually. Uh, just the proportions, and not the amounts, so the proportion of their budget. Ah, the proportion of their Have a guess, have a guess. 3%. It, if I tell you, if I tell you um, that uh, the, what's called, it's a terrible phrase, but what's called the burden of disease for mental health is 24%. Okay, so I'm going to guess it's smaller than that. Do we get any points for that? Yeah. How many points do we get? Five points? Yeah, okay, five points. Okay, <laughs> I'm going to guess it's significantly lower than that. I'm going to guess 5%. So um, those that allocate the least is 6%. Not bad. Not bad. For a total ignorance. Yeah. Really. Was, uh, so some allocate up to 18%, but there's a massive gulf in between. And there's and is that because even within the NHS, people just don't take mental health seriously? I think different... different um, or, or, I mean, the evidence, you know, speaks for itself that, that you know different groups are kind of um, take it um, more seriously than others or think it's more um, of something that they should be addressing I mean we what I've learned um, in, in this role for the last year is that actually there's more of an impact on, on physical health if you've got you know a mental health problem as well so actually we should be investing more mental health than, than, than happens and it's just not the case okay uh, I'll open up the floor to questions now have we got a roving mic Yes, we have. Excellent. Uh, so if, you, uh, if people like to put their hands up, uh, and we'll come round. And I'll try and do it. I'll try and sort of sweep across the room to make it easier. Um, you've, got, you've got a hand up right down the front. Okay. Uh, let's go with the gentleman at the front. This is Tris. He's a lovely chap. He's going to come round and help him. Just pass it around. Um, okay, so your name. Where are you from? And I'll tell you what, we'll try and sort of maybe take them in groups. Is there anyone else around there that would like to ask a few questions? Or one, more to the point. <laughs> okay, well, let's start with you. Alex Russell. from Greenwich. Um, what I wanted to know was, um, from UKIP's response to Ellen, uh, Emily Thornberry, of being, we have local candidates from the constituency, what can the three main parties attack that with? Because there is too many dropped-in candidates at the moment that don't really have anything to talk about locally. Okay, so it's about having local people representing yeah. local people. Is there anyone else around that area that would like to ask a question? Any more local people to, to this mm -hmm. chap? Uh, yes, the chap there. Okay. Nothing to do with local issues. Okay. Uh, is it What's your name? Jez. Uh, is Good it name. The, the job of politicians to follow public opinion in order to secure votes, or is it the job to lead public opinion even when it's unpopular? 
Excellent. And, um, well, I'm a Blairite, so the latter. Uh, <laughs> anyone else in that area? Got a question? No? Okay. Well, let's take those two then, for starters. Excellent. Um, Alex, um, so the process that we have within the Labour Party is that it's local members that choose who their candidate is. We also have a meritocratic process by way of anyone that wants to put themselves forward can, and it's up to those members to A, shortlist their candidate, and B, to choose their final, you know, who, they, who their final yeah, choice no, is. Uh, no, I understand the process. Oh, no, no, but it's an important point because... Election, but, 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 my point but, is, is that there is, a, there is a clear... By UKIP's advance, there is a clear point that they are playing, which is... But we've got local people. But every party does that at different points. So like whenever you've got a local candidate, obviously you always say, well, we've got a local candidate. And the Labour Party's something. I say, we're local, yeah, yeah, yeah. and this guy, he's from London, and he's rich. Problem, so don't vote for him. But the problem is, is UKIP are doing it in, in more places they're attacking. Yeah, but Carswell's not but from Clacton, is he? No, he's not. Yeah. He was representing them anyway. What I'm saying is, <laughs> where, they target, where, they target, where they're targeting, yeah. they're taking local people. Okay, that's a very good point. They, they don't always have local candidates. That, that's one, one thing just, just to reflect yeah, no, on. No, no, but ultimately, no. it's up to the people that live in that area to decide who their candidate is. And if they think the most important thing is, you know, if that person was born in that particular postcode, then they will choose those candidates available. If they want to choose who they think is the best candidate for the job, that is, that is what they will do. Um, and ultimately, I think we should have that meritocratic process by where you know, we have members to decide from a range of different candidates who they think will be the best representative on their behalf. UKIP's straight response to Emily Thornberry's thing was, look at, uh, they, they picked on Thurrock, yeah. um, purely because their Labour's, um, the person fighting the seat for Labour is actually from Knightsbridge and lives quite near Emily Thornbury. But what would you, would you rather have a local and, candidate? No, well, no, I, I'm, I'm completely out of it, but what I'm saying is... Just by asking that. Clearly, what I'm saying is, is that... I couldn't care less, mate, I just wanted to ask a question. Eh? If, if that's their point of target, if that's their point of argument... Okay. What is the response to it? We're well, just saying we've got a better candidate. Yeah, but... That, <laughs> I get it, it's, it's taller. <laughs> I think there's, there's lots of examples where people will, will choose people because they think they're the best person for the yeah. job. And, and, and if they, as again, I come back to my point, if, 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 you're, if, if where someone's from is, is the most important thing to you, then you will go for that candidate. But I think no, there's I lots know, of different examples. I grew up here is a good argument. Yeah. To an extent. Yeah. I grew up here, I've never moved. So uh, <laughs> if you want a fellow loser, vote for me. <laughs> London's rubbish. Um, well, no, but there is a, but it can be made on both sides, can it? Um, uh, yes, Jess has a question. Um, Jess, in response to your question, I think you know you can't be afraid to take difficult decisions as a politician yeah. um, when working in politics. Um, <laughs> thanks, <for that. laughs> but equally, you have to respond to the public, you know, what, what the public are concerned about and, and what, what they want and feel. So it, it, it's about striking a balance. There's some some cases where you have to take very very difficult decisions, and you're not going to please everyone. I mean, the idea that there's some sort of uniform view is not the case. So there will always be instances, and if I come back to gay marriage for instance, you know, within my own constituency, two very, very different views. I wasn't going to please all of my constituents on that specific vote. But the idea that we've got some sort of uniform, monolithic public opinion is, is not the case. OK. Uh, yes, there's a chat there. Should we try and uh, take that question then? 
Thank you. Uh, Peter Campbell from South London. Uh, thank you very much, Luciana. Um, very simple question, um, apart from TV, um, political heroes? <laughs> TV as in Tony Blair, not as in tuberculosis. <laughs> <laughs> Who are your political heroes? Vital clarification. Um, I mean, I'm inspired by lots of women that, that, that were in politics. Um, Mo Molin, for me, um, was, was one of them. Barbara Castle was another. Um, she did some um, really great work that's also related to some of the work that I'm doing in public health. So I was involved in the um, what we hope will be a, a law coming forward very soon to ban smoking in cars with children. Um, she introduced um, the law around seatbelts. Um, she also said that guts is all, and that's something for me that uh, I'm driven by quite often. So uh, that, that's on women. But also, I, you know, I do have political heritage within, within my family, and I'm, I've been very interested in the background of um, Manny Shinwell, um, who uh, was in my family, and um, learning a lot from him and his experience um, within the Labour movement. Good answer. Uh, right, have we got any more? What about in this sort of section here? Any questions? Yes, the gentleman at the front. Yeah. Hi, Just hold on a sec, we'll get you a microphone. Just let us know your name and then uh, here we are. Hi, my name's Stuart. I'm from Glasgow originally, but I know London and counties. So, uh, I, I'm one of the silent majority. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was just going to ask, so we're on a comedy evening, supposedly tonight. Uh, what's the funniest thing you've ever heard said in the Commons Chamber? <laughs> Great question. Funniest thing I've ever heard in the Commons Chamber. And there was, was there a chap at the back that wanted uh, a question as well? Cheers, Tris. Sorry about this, mate. And is there anyone else in this sort of general section who would like to ask a question? Any women? Um, I feel terrible okay. asking this question after one way you're supposed to give a humorous answer, but in relation to you know, the Prime Minister and the recent developments about the killers of Lee Rigby and their use of social media, your own horrific experiences with social media recently, what should, and your enthusiasm for using social media, what should we expect from social media companies in terms of how they manage extremist abuse and the use of it, the use by extremists of their platforms in order to incite hatred. What, what was your name? My name is Nick. Uh, it's also known as at truthteller9000 on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, are there any other... Yes, some of them are. Is there, is there any, as you rightly said, is there any women that would like to ask a question that would be uh, marvellous? Um, hello, my name is Peter, I'm from West London. Um, Labour MPs are currently, or most of them are saying that um, you made a mistake on immigration. Um, but Andrew Nether, a senior Labour policy writer in 2009, said it was a deliberate attempt to rub the right's nose in diversity to make their arguments out of date and to provide the middle class with babysitters and, and other helpers. Um, do you think your current view is a result of idiocy or dishonesty? Well, what a lovely balanced question. <laughs> Crikey. Well, in any order you like. Uh... Lucky me. Um, uh, Peter. I'll, I'll start with Peter's question about immigration. We have to say we didn't get it all right on immigration. We have to acknowledge that. Um, um, and I think it's right that Ed has done so. Um, and I think it's important that we acknowledge that people have got legitimate concerns about immigration, um, which um, are the, it, it's a symptom rather than a cause by way of things like um, 
exploitation at work, people that aren't being paid the national minimum wage, when some companies are only advertising uh, overseas. These are the things that we have to contend with and address, and that, you know, we didn't do it before. Um, issues around transitional controls, we, sh we should have looked at that a, a lot more closely. And these are things that we said we're going to address. We have said, um, I don't know if you've heard this week, that we want to see a, a thousand extra more board officials so we can actually count people in and out um, in a way that's not happening at the moment um, and you know it does come up on the doorstep but, but largely that's because people aren't being paid um, uh, as I said they're either not being paid the minimum wage or they're not being paid the living wage and it's only the Labour Party that's actually now talking about addressing those very serious issues that people are really concerned about. Well, this idea it's taken root and I've heard other people say it um, that somehow and I, I, I don't agree with what you said. This, this, sort of, this idea almost that New Labour deliberately created a multicultural country mm. to firstly, as, as you sort of suggest, uh, rub the right's nose in it. But also there, there seems to be some suggestion that Labour created, you know, allowed mass immigration uh, in order to get more votes. I mean, is there any truth to that at all? No. I, I don't even know the person, is it Andrew, that, um, that Peter... Andrew, no, yes. Yeah, I, I don't know him. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't... Yeah, it hasn't. You know, I don't know. I don't know who this individual is, but that certainly wasn't the case. Um, okay. Oh, yes. Yeah, so we have answers for these. Um, so there's a question about you know the, the role and responsibility of social media companies. Um, I think they do have um, more of a, well, they should be more responsible. I think there's lots of examples where, um, in fact, I was meeting the Samaritans today who were showing me their concerns about the fact that you can readily access material about how to commit suicide. And there's actually examples of how people have used that material to commit suicide. Yeah, that's one example of where you know, people are hosting harmful materials that we should do something about, I think. So um, it, I think there's a kind of an attitude from some of the social media companies that it's not their responsibility. I had a very interesting discussion about what words they should, you know, um, that they, you know, words that you wouldn't see in mainstream or, or any sort of media that aren't acceptable, and yet they host the clearly hateful um, words, but they're, they're not inclined in any way, shape, or form to do anything about it. And I think they do have, they, they are, they should be more responsible. But is it then, if if they if you if they voluntarily, would would Labour be prepared to, to force them through law? Well, I think you know, there was um, the the statement only yesterday about what you know what's happened in lively rugby. I think the social media companies, um, sh if they weren't already, should be, you know, will be paying close attention, and if they, you know, we'll have to see what happens as a result of this. But it's it's clear that you know that they have been shown to be you know, responsible um, in some ways, and that they should be held to account for that. Oh, that's, oh, the funniest oh, the funniest thing. Um, so, um, one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard in Parliament was um, uh, a man stand up and do a point of order about what was parliamentary um, for women to wear in the chamber, because he took issue with the fact that another woman was wearing some dark jeans in the chamber. Um, to me, that was just absurd and ridiculous, and, and actually we should you know, be as accessible as we possibly can to the public, and the fact that this male MP thought, thought it... I made up that. Well, it made me laugh because it was so ridiculous. <laughs> um, anything funny? Um, um, it's a shame that it sort of doesn't. It, like, I always think of it as like a really boisterous, funny place, but it sounds like the, the day to day experience of it is, is actually the opposite. There are some. some of those, uh, Stephen Pound is very funny. Um, he often sits on, on, on the back row. Um, I can't think of, of what, an example, but he comes up with some really good quips of, uh, um, of, you know, in terms of what people are saying on the other side. And uh, you quite often hear laughter, you know, in different pockets. On, uh, someone will say something funny. It makes me laugh. It, it, I mean, it is awful to admit this, but it's the heckles that make me laugh the most. I can't remember who it was who said it. It was a Tory MP, someone was speaking, and you get the usual stuff where people are going, yeah, resign, resign, all this sort of thing. And I just said one Tory MP, it was years ago, just go, what are 
are you on about? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why people are just really expect. Oh, Baroness Trumping too much. She gave the V sign to yeah. uh, whoever it was, the uh, Conservative colleague. That was in the Lords, but that was. That's sort of quite funny. Uh, are there any women that would like to ask a question? <coughs> yes, excellent. Yes, the, the lady over here will, will get a. Uh, We'll get a uh, microphone over. Hello. Hello. Hi. Laura, it's nice to see a woman in politics. Um, I was just wondering, if you could be Prime Minister of the day and you had power to make one decision, what would that be? Um, so as a con well, there's, there's lots of different things, um, but if the first thing that came to my mind was that I think we should be doing more about food poverty in our country, and the fact that over half a million people have had to access uh, emergency food aid, I think is a national disgrace being the sixth richest nation in the world. So I made a film about it um, a couple of years ago, and I had the first debate in Parliament about it, and I just, you know, the, the government gets away with it, but I, I, I'm ashamed that we've got so many people that are in desperate need, and I've seen it firsthand for myself, that, you know, only go there, you know, as a last resort because they literally don't have any food or they're feeding their kids but not you know there's no food for themselves and I just don't think that's right in the 21st century in, in Britain. If it was like a sort of like fantasy like genie situation yeah. where like they said one wish for yourself <laughs> if your prime minister could do something selfish it would be something in the creative industries. I'm, I'm okay. very passionate about our, our creative industries, so I'd do something to make our creative industries more accessible to as many people as possible, so I could enjoy it too. I would go back in time to uh, September 2009 <laughs> and force Gordon Brown to call that. <laughs> For that £800? Yeah, exactly. £800 yeah. pounds so you could get the haircut? Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And eat those pasties. <laughs> oh, veg pasties. They're still only a quid, even in Surbiton. Incredible value. Um, is there anyone on the balcony that would like to ask a question? Yeah. Yes, okay, we've got quite a few. Uh, Trish oh, is just going to run up. That's all Annika Rice. I mean, to, uh, sort of leg it round. I love that programme going on. It was great when yeah. it challenged Annika. Yeah. Um, I always wanted that bum bag. She, it was this, well, I spoke like the shell suit. Yeah. Um, a highly flammable woman, Annika Rice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's. let's... <coughs> Here we go. And it's Jan and uh, Brian, they're in, uh, in Buckinghamshire. Hi, Brian. Um, just got to say, if I ask a question, that if you haven't seen it before, there's a great YouTube clip called 100 Greatest Funniest Moments in Parliament. Oh, great. If you haven't seen it, have a look, it's really great. Particularly the one with Simon Hughes and Betty Booth. Right. You will laugh about that. <laughs> question more seriously, how is this? Uh, I teach A-level politics uh, at an all-girls school. We have, on average, 30 to 40 students every year studying, which is great. But when I ask them, how many of you want to become MPs? I get no response. What advice would you give me to give them? Great question. Well, I'd love to come and speak to them um, and, and listen to them if, if, okay. if that's... Sorry, do I, do I contact you through... Yeah. Amazing! Oh! It's sort of giving away a prize. That feels really... And that, again, it comes back to like us as MPs trying to get out as much as possible to kind of uh, dispel the myths about you know we don't have you know, we, we are normal people and quite often you know I, I speak to my constituents in, in the supermarket uh, when I'm, I'm choosing my yogurt in, in Asda and and we just need to get out as much as possible so if, if there is that opportunity I'm, I'm, I, I for me the, the best thing is speaking to young people and to you know join them and, and hear what they've got to say in colleges youth groups in schools so brilliant there you go what a result. Uh, Anyone else on the balcony? Yes. Well, I think us. Um, Lucia from Dublin. Um, as a woman who pushes boundaries, how do you think we're going to break this glass ceiling forever? And secondly, slightly <coughs> one word answer. 
How annoyed do you get when they shorten your name to Lucy in a coffee shop? <laughs> It's, uh, it's ironic you talk about a glass ceiling when you're sat on a glass balcony. You, talk, <laughs> you manage to rise above it. Uh, <laughs> Luciana in, uh, in the coffee shop, is that a major issue? Lou. I get called Lou. Oh, do you? But I like being called Lou. I don't be, like being called Lucy, so... Uh, okay. I, I, well, as I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not that bothered, but um, I prefer Lou to Lucy. Uh, and in terms of... Uh, the glass ceiling. Well, I think we need to start in schools. Um, I think we need to do everything to make sure girls... And, and young women know that, that every opportunity is available to them. Um, I think careers advice is really, really important. And there's two really examples of where, you know, um, women are pigeonholed. And I heard a story only yesterday where there was a, a woman that was told, or she was thinking about going to the medical profession, she said, and they, she was told, no, no, you, sh you should be a nurse. That shouldn't be happening in 2014. That shouldn't be happening. So we've got a lot of work to be doing in our schools. And to, you know, in, in all industries, and particularly, I mentioned um, the creative industries in digital, we need more women getting into coding we need more women in technology and, and women need to know that there's great opportunities for them but I think that the schools is where it, where it begins and actually holding those companies to account that don't have women on their boards um, or that don't promote or that you know there isn't equal pay for men and women I think you know we've got plans to actually expose that and I think that's a really important step forward. Are you in favour of quotas at all? Um, I think it's, it's something to include in the mix of, of things to look at I mean, we need to do something to address the gender balance in lots of different um, um, spheres and lots of different professions. It's not just the gender balance. There's, there's a wider point about you know, diversity in, in lots of different workforces. But um, I don't think we should take anything off the table if we don't see progress very, very soon. OK, excellent. And anyone else on the balcony? I yes, the gentleman there. I can't see you. Hi, uh, Simon from Berkshire. Um, I just wanted to ask, um, as a young MP who has obviously just recently paid off her student loan, um, what are your thoughts on free university education in the UK? Um, so I, I was involved um, um, for, for many years. I, I got involved in politics through, through student union politics, and, and I saw firsthand and heard firsthand about how people were um, affected by, um, or would be affected by, by student fees and finance. I think you're focusing on university education. I think it's right that we focus on all tertiary education, which includes those people that you know don't go to university, they go to college, or might want to go straight into work. So you know, it's one, not one at the expense of the other. We have to look at the whole. Um, 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 the whole, you know, the whole thing. Um, uh, I have previously um, campaigned um, for free education. Um, I can't, I can't shy away from that. That's that's my past. Um, but we also have to find a, a means to pay for it. So you know, we're looking. Um, I say we, my colleagues are looking at lots of different models about how we make um, tuition fees more affordable. I know that we wouldn't have tripled it to nine thousand pounds. And um, I mentioned before that my constituencies where I, I fought the Lib Dems, I've got lots of students in my constituency. And what I think is most important is that we don't make promises that we can't keep. And that's what happened at the last election. And I have many young people that are turned off from voting because they gave their vote to a party that said, we're going to do away with tuition fees, knowing full well when they came into government, into coalition, because they were already having those discussions that they could never deliver on it, never deliver on it. And not just not deliver on it, but do completely the reverse. And I think that's um, had a massive impact on young people. So, you know, whatever we choose to do, we need to make sure that we can deliver on, and that's what's ultimately most important. Because there was a there was a rumour before the last election that Gordon Brown wanted to promise yeah. free tuition fees. I mean, do you think uh, Labour could go into the next election promising that, or is that is that off the table? As I said, I think, well, I think our focus is very much about how we can provide all young people with good opportunities, and be that in education, employment or training. We don't just want to focus on, on one at the expense of the other. So 
for me, that's that's more important than just having the kind of the offer to university students. I think it was right that we um, 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 that we expanded university education and that we gave more people, uh, or we encouraged you know more young people to, to have that opportunity. But again, it can't be at the expense of the forgotten fifty percent. We have to focus on that as well. Okay, excellent, uh, ladies and gentlemen. That uh, concludes uh, tonight's uh, show. Uh, please um, show your appreciation for Pav and all the stuff at the St James's Theatre and everyone at Avalon. Is, uh, on the road uh, <laughs> this, uh, this is the last one of uh, 2014. We'll be back in the new year. My first guest of the new year, in January, will be Paul Nuttall, the deputy leader of UK. <laughs> so that should be a good laugh. Uh, the uh, tickets are already on sale, and uh, we're going to confirm some conservative and some more Labour guests for the new year. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, thanks. Uh, if this is your first time tonight, have you enjoyed it? Um, if this is uh, your second or more, thanks for keep coming down and supporting the show. I think it's important that we show politicians in a positive light, regardless of uh, ideology. Uh, so thank you as an audience for helping make it happen as an event. Um, and please, your last round of applause in the evening for the wonderful Luciana Berger. There you go, Luciana Berger. Uh, it's interesting when you uh, compare the, the sorts of interviews you get uh, with politicians across different parties and at different stages in their career. And I think you get a real sense of Luciana that she's someone who's going somewhere, someone that is uh, very gifted. And um, I have no doubt in the next few years will we'll, we'll be a far more prominent uh, figure in, in British politics and and British politics will be better for that, I think. Um, just a couple of things. The next show is Douglas Alexander on Wednesday, the 25th of February. Um, tickets are available on the website, stjamestheatre.co.uk. He's the Shadow Foreign Secretary. He's the man running Labour's campaign. So this is a, an amazing time to get a, a real insight into what Labour's election campaign is going to be. It's so close now. Uh, and secondly, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, um, this show has been nominated for an award uh, in the Chortle Awards, the sort of uh, comedy industry awards. Uh, in the internet section, so it's for this podcast, which I'm obviously delighted by. Um, and if you'd like to vote for it, you can go to the Chortle website, which is chortle.co.uk, and vote in the best internet category. You don't have to vote in every category. You might want to, um, but this is in the internet category. Um, so I would um, obviously massively appreciate it. But thanks for continually supporting it and downloading it. And if you enjoy it, please do tell your friends. The Paul Nuttall one will be out soon. Thanks for downloading it. Ta-ra!